This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about healthcare. And of course, for the last two plus years, talking about healthcare has really meant talking about COVID 19. Yet, healthcare is so much bigger than any single virus. While we all watch the dashboard showing the peaks and valleys of COVID infections, hospitalizations, and deaths, there were many other statistics that shifted into the background as stress and delay warped the healthcare system. And it wasn't like that healthcare system was perfect. COVID has both exposed and intensified existing problems in our hospitals, including access for some Americans and deep inequities when it comes to race. The pandemic also created new problems, including shortages of supplies and equipment early on, and now, as we press through a fourth virus surge, shortages of hospital staff. As much of the country attempts to move past the pandemic, we wanted to know how healthcare professionals are considering the impacts and outlook for the healthcare system. So we invited two leaders to the Crosscut Festival to share their perspectives. Cassie Sauer is the CEO of the Washington Hospital Association, where she advocates for health systems throughout the state. She also previously worked to advance healthcare policy with the Children's Alliance. Vin Gupta is a pulmonologist who has worked with the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the World Health Organization, and the Pentagon Center for Global Health Engagement. He's also an Air Force reservist and provides analysis for CNN, NBC, and the New York Times. And he currently works as the chief medical officer for Amazon. In this conversation, which took place in early May, journalist Will Stone does a good job of examining the cracks that this prolonged stress test has exposed. But there are also a number of silver linings. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Dr. Gupta, Cassie, thank, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So there have been so many challenges for hospitals and healthcare workers over the course of the pandemic. Before we get into all of those, I'd like to start with asking you about the moment we are in right now. Uh, clearly, the virus is still out there. There's always the possibility of new variants. Our vaccination coverage could be better in the U.S., but it does seem like we are in a new phase as we make our way further uh, into 2022, living with COVID. And so starting with you, Dr. Gupta, Vin, uh, how does this moment feel to you? Uh, how would you describe it? You know, uh, Will, thank you for having me, Cassie. It's great to be here with you. Uh, it's a moment of hope, but cautious hope, cautious optimism right now, Will. I, I'd say for, for everybody that's tuning in, between now and around Halloween of, of 2022, we should expect some degree of normalcy when it comes to co the, co the stress that COVID's gonna place in our ICUs, our hospital systems across Washington state, across the country. I know Cassie can speak to that with even more greater detail than I can. I work at Virginia Mason part-time. Uh, I'm an Air Force reservist, so I've deployed to, to other uh, zip codes across the country over the last two and a half years. 
And I've seen what we, we've contended with elsewhere and really felt privileged that uh, I get to work in the amazing health systems here in Seattle. Uh, and so I, I expect that this is going to be a time of relative normalcy. We're not going to zero out on hospitalizations. People will continue to die from this virus, and it's going to continue to change. We should expect that because that's what happens with contagious respiratory viruses. I say this as a pulmonologist. This is not unusual. And we should expect that we're going to hear about a Zeta variant, a Theta variant, uh, maybe a subvariant of Omicron uh, that's not BA2, something else that's arisen either here or elsewhere. This is the natural evolution of contagious respiratory viruses. It shouldn't alarm us. And, and really, we're, we're reckoning, Will, right now with the purpose of vaccination. Omicron forced us that day after Thanksgiving. You'll probably remember that. I remember it really vividly. Day after Thanksgiving, reckoning with why do we get vaccinated for things like influenza? Now, in this case, COVID-19. The purpose here is not to prevent a positive test. It's not to prevent mild symptoms to keep you away from an ICU, from a hospital. And we've we had a reckoning with that pretty, pretty quickly uh, right after Thanksgiving until literally as, as, as we're having this conversation, people are still reckoning with that, with that reality, who should and should not get a booster. These will, this will be the nature of the conversation moving forward, understanding why we do what we do. It's not to prevent cases. We don't have that tool in the toolkit. It's to keep people out of the hospital. Since we've aligned on that now, I think uh, it's clear to me what success is going to look like. Maintaining low stress in hospitals come even winter 2022. And that, to me, is going to be the, the near-term challenge. Well, Cassie, uh, you have this wide view of the healthcare system in Washington. And I wonder, what does it feel like for the hospitals you represent? Does it feel like COVID is still very much with you uh, or and you're still in a pandemic? Or does it feel different? It does feel like we're still in a pandemic, and I think there's a lot of worry about what comes next. We've had, you know, I was looking back on thinking uh, we were going to have the Freedom Summer in July. That was announced July 4th of 2021. We were all giving thanks at Thanksgiving, then mentioned the day after Thanksgiving, you know, we could all be together. We were done, and then it came roaring back. So I think there's just a lot of trepidation about what might be coming next. And you add on to that the stress of people who's had very delayed care throughout the pandemic, either by their own choice because they were nervous about going to a healthcare facility or because of the um, orders to stop doing non-urgent procedures. And there's a lot of people whose health conditions have worsened, not COVID-related, that we're, we're grappling with as well. So the backlog in Washington hospitals is really significant. I also would add to Vin's comments about the, the purpose of vaccination is to keep you out of the ICU. Absolutely. Even more so, keep you out of the morgue. I mean, that's the thing that I find remarkable is there's still hundreds of people dying every day in America from this disease. And thinking if you're one of like America, we sort of have this attitude now of like, it's over. You don't have to wear a mask anywhere. You can fly on a plane without a mask. If you're one of the people who is dying or who, you've just lost your person um, to COVID, it, it must feel just like a, just a, such a weird moment in time that everyone seems is sort of moving on. And meanwhile, you're just moving into incredible grief. Well, Cassie, I'd like to stay with you. And uh, I guess because this panel is about uh, problems with our healthcare, though we're going to get to solutions um, as well. Um, I'd like to talk to you a bit about, you know, could you pick one, two of the biggest vulnerabilities um, in our model healthcare, how we've been delivering it, that you feel COVID really exposed or exacerbated, um, you know, from your perspective as someone who represents, you know, hospitals? 
Yeah, I think um, a big one is health equity and the in um, inequitable access to information, to treatment, different levels of trust with the healthcare system, um, and then different levels of underlying healthcare conditions that exacerbate a disease like COVID. Uh, you know, if you look at the death rates by race in this country, it's it's shameful. Um, it's you know something we really need to address, and I think that's very much come to the forefront. Um, another vulnerability for us from the hospital side is staffing. You know, we um, we were overwhelmed by COVID, and we have a lot of staff who are very traumatized. The normal, um, and then please jump in on this too. The normal ICU death rate in many of our hospitals is about five to eight, seven, eight percent. That's how about that that number of patients die. In the peaks of COVID, it was more like 35 or 40 percent. So if you're a staff person who works at an ICU, you don't you 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 see death for sure, but you don't see it at that rate. And you also don't see death like this, which is many younger people, many people with young families who can't be with their people. You know, they're by themselves upside down on a ventilator and no one can speak to them and no one can say goodbye. And so that adds to the trauma because they absorb so much family trauma. And so that, you know, the we are, that's a big vulnerability for us right now is just how do we help our staff recover and be prepared to care for people um, uh, in the way that they need to. And Vin, can you, uh, I mean, I'm sure you have some other things to add to this as a clinician, um, things you were probably aware of well before COVID, but you, you know, really COVID really kind of sh shone a light on it. Yeah, well, you know, Will, to build on what Cassie just mentioned, I, I sometimes we we came face to face pre pre pandemic to this notion of staffing, but not really to this extent. I mean, I, I was just in the ICU last week, and the rate limiting step was not physicians, it was not respiratory therapists, it was not dialysis bags. Literally, the bags that you need to run a patient on with dialysis, we were lacking that about six months ago across the country. It's nurses uh, to staff ICU beds, at least in the hospital systems that I've worked in both here and elsewhere, we don't have enough. And in part, it's because uh, some of the therapies that we want to deploy when the ventilator isn't enough, like ECMO, literally sucking the blood out of a patient's body, sending it to an oxygenator, sending it right back in, cardiopulmonary bypass, some, some folks might be familiar with, that's labor intensive. You need advanced critical care nursing skills to support that. So when, 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 we're trying to, when we're talking about addressing that mortality rate in the ICU that Cassie talked about, that really high mortality rate, in the absence of miracle therapeutics that we still, don't, uh, that we still lack in the ICU, really it's TLC and tincture of time. If, I, the things you need there to make that successful are adequate staffing. We don't have that. Uh, what I was alarmed by is six months uh, prior to when I, I was deployed to, to Southern Ohio, uh, towards the end of September in our Air Force Reservist capacity. And we sent a team, it was a, myself, a, a respiratory nurse, or a respiratory therapist and a nurse, a critical care transport team from Lewis McCord. We went to Southern Ohio. We were there shipping patients from say Chattanooga all the way up to the Cleveland Clinic that required this advanced therapeutic in the ICU, this ECMO procedure. And we were in the C-17s and C-130s, Will, that JBLM, Lewis McCord, utilized and sent over for the Kabul evacuation six months prior. So in the summer of 2021, the same infrastructure that was being utilized to move uh, uh, Afghanis and, and Americans and, and other assets from Kabul elsewhere to safety, six in, literally not even six months, three months later, they were being utilized to move Americans to, to advanced levels of care for COVID, for COVID treatment. That's not sustainable. 
And that, that was our short-term fix in many cases for this healthcare workforce crisis. Let's deploy the military and our military medical assets. We're going to lose 30% of doctors, 40% of nurses by end of year. Probably these were numbers that were predicted pre-pandemic. That's probably much worse in terms of what the forecast is in terms of attrition from the healthcare workforce. Deploying the military is not going to be a, a permanent fix when this happens inevitably again. We need to think about ways to train more nurses, more support staff, more physicians, retain them. I'll say that my, the respiratory therapist that I deployed with got hazard pay in uniform. As a civilian working in Tucson, no hazard pay. Didn't make sense. Basic things I think we can fix so that we, we can help solve this problem. Technology also is going to be a solution as well. But, but that, to me, is the crisis of our times looking past COVID. Well, I mean, looking a bit at some of the real extreme moments over the last two years, uh, and I know as like a member of the media, uh, that's when we're calling the doctors. That's when we're calling Cassie. Um, it's when things are really bad because we should be paying attention then. Um, but I want to kind of ask you a bit about what happens after that, you know, after the surge, um, after the adrenaline of having some big wave uh, hit the hospital and maybe starting with you, Cassie, uh, what do you see after, after we stop doing the stories? But um, clearly there's a huge mark uh, on the patients, on the healthcare system. Yeah. And I, th I think there's both good and bad. I mean, there's certainly the stress we've just we've described with the staff in Washington state, we have a ton to be proud of. I don't know if folks have looked at our death rate per capita, but we're like the fifth lowest in the country states of death rate per capita. And we were the state that was surprised by COVID. You know, everyone else got to learn from us. Um, and we were, I, I know we were, we were, I'm sure you were as well then telling everyone who would listen, like, here's how you prepare, here's what you need to do. But um, the, the public's support for being cautious here was definitely better than in many places. The hospital's collaboration here was unprecedented in other versus other parts of the country. We actually had written agreements among all of our hospitals that no individual hospital would ever go into crisis standards of care alone, that we would move patients, we would move PPE, vaccines, remdesivir, ventilators, staff, you know, whatever was needed, uh, mostly patients was what moved the most. To level load across the state, you know, there were we had huge surges in like Yakima and in Wenatchee, and they could not; those communities could not have handled those surges. There is no way. So they were sending patients all over the state, and hospitals were willing to take them. And um, so I think that there's a lot that we learned out of how do we work better together, how do we make sure that we're prepared for a future surge. Um, so there's, I think, some of that; those good things are also carried forward in addition to the the trauma. Hmm. What did it do to your hospital after you had got through a big wave? I mean, what did you see in terms of um, yeah. you know, your staff or the patients? Yeah, um, I think the the fatigue was significant among everyone. Um, the patients for either the patients who had COVID were off. Many of them are still struggling with if, if you were sick enough to be hospitalized. In many cases, people are not well. They're still not well. They're home, but they're not well. And so that's a, really a big deal for them. But we also have, as I mentioned before, a huge backlog of folks who had care delayed. And some of this, you know, there, this non-urgent procedures uh, prohibition, which we were had major concerns with, people hear non-urgent procedures and they think facelift, and that's not what was delayed. 
it was things like heart valve replacements and joint replacements and some things that really don't have a health impact but have huge psychological impact. One of the stories that we heard um, several times was folks who'd had abdominal cancer and who had a, a colostomy as part of the, they, they completed their cancer treatment, but part of their cancer treatment involved having a colostomy. They were scheduled for reversal of that colostomy and that colostomy reversal was delayed by three, four, five, six months. Now, just imagine if you had had cancer, had been through the whole cancer treatment, cancer surgery, had a colostomy, which is terrible, think you're going to get it reversed, and they, you're told you're, you have to wait three months, four months, or we don't, or even we don't know when we can do this. Like the psychological impact of that is really tremendous. So, I think that that non-urgent um, notion and how that's affected people, and people have gotten sicker, people who needed a joint replacement, their mobility has declined tremendously, and that you know, that comes with other health problems. So, there's a lot to recover from for patients for sure. Well, Vin, what, I mean, in terms of patients, uh, in the disruptions, massive disruptions, uh, even not even directly the people who were infected and hospitalized for COVID, what, what have you seen um, and, and heard about from your colleagues? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, in any given day, I, mean, I feel privileged. I, I could be caring for a patient uh, at the bedside and then uh, I see what uh, interesting solutions are being developed in the virtual telemedicine space. For example, meeting patients now where they want to be met, which is I don't want to come and drive into Seattle and pay parking and figure out a way to to walk into the hospital, especially if it's on a hill. I want care at home. And many of the integrated healthcare systems across the country, many of the healthcare systems here in, in, in King County, across Washington State, are developing virtual medical homes where care is more convenient and people can get services on demand. And now we're seeing it play out in real time, Will. This, this, this sort of concept of test to treat, which I'm really, you know, and I know many of my fellow clinicians, Cassie and, and, and other healthcare leaders are really passionate about this concept of how can you intervene early in a convenient way into somebody's sort of acute infectious illness like COVID-19 and then get them treatment within the prescribed window of time. Uh, I'll just I'll I'll speak from my own experience uh, that I, I think we sometimes struggle with early tests to treat whether it's for flu, COVID nineteen, other sepsis like conditions and infectious etiologies that can cause cause you to end up in the hospital, urinary tract infections, STIs, other pneumonias not that are not COVID nineteen. We sometimes struggle to get a timely test and then get timely treatment, and that's a and and so I think if there's a silver lining here. It's that people are now willing to do to not necessarily say, you know, what, I got to go and drive and see my doc or my medical provider in clinic. I have to have that face to face conversation. They're now willing uh, to, to do things differently. I think the pandemic accelerated behavior change, a willingness to try new things like staying at home, doing a, a, a phone visit or a telemedicine visit through an app. And now potentially we can get them treatment at home as well, because you know what? They're testing themselves anyway for COVID-19, probably with a rapid test at home, not with a lab-based test that goes to a hospital. So, so we're moving meaningful clinical services to the home. I think this will be ultimately a good thing for, for Cassie and the hospital systems that she oversees across the state, because the biggest driver of avoidable healthcare costs across the country is for avoiding sepsis-like illnesses, uh, hospitalizations from sepsis-like illnesses, acute infectious diseases causing somebody to end up in the hospital. Early intervention, early treatment, big silver lining of this pandemic, in my opinion. Well, let me just follow up on that uh, because 
I mean, is the test to treat really working the way it needs to? And is this just going to be a passing thing with COVID while there's money and momentum? It's not going to get carried over to all these other you know challenges we have. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Is it, is it optimal now? No, in part because there's a lot of kinks that need to be worked out. One, we don't have enough supply of, of Paxlovid in this case, that oral antiviral that I'm sure many people have heard about, developed by Pfizer. There's another one developed by Merck. Both both effective to varying degrees at keeping folks out of the hospital that are high risk, they end up with a, with a positive diagnosis. Once we get more supply and supply is improving, access will be easier. Is it going to be perfect? No, because you're still hearing. Kaiser Health News just reported some people have to drive 100 miles from a rural county to an urban, ex-urban county to actually get access. That's unacceptable, which is why virtualizing it. We can't provide an at-home test and not then provide the other part of the care continuum, which is, which is care, connecting with a provider, and then potentially treatment. If we're going to do one part of that care continuum at home, in my opinion, we need to do all of it. We have to uh, provide that entire journey also at home conveniently. And, and, and to your point on, is this a passing thing because there's attention being paid here and there's money? Uh, this is where payers get involved. I th- uh, big payers, Medicare, Medicaid, third-party payers like Medicare Advantage programs, you name it, private insurers, employers are interested in these types of innovations. How do we keep people at home that would otherwise end up in the hospital? because we're monitoring them remotely with a new device because we have virtual tests to treat. There are different new innovations here that can keep people at home. And that's when, once you start getting the attention of payers, that's when innovation gets embraced. That's when, that's when people actually utilize these services. And I, so uh, this to me is a start of a trend, not just a fad. And there, there actually is a hospital at home program that was allowed during COVID that is based on waivers. Um, that are connected to the public health emergency. That's something that's interesting. A lot of the wave, things that were waived only can be waived right. during the emergency. And if the emergency is ended, the waivers end. So we are active in advocacy um, to keep the hospital at home program going and to expand it. Um, it's I actually had my dad in it and uh, it was amazing. It was, he, had a, he had a cough, I called, they sent an x-ray team out. They were there within an hour. They x-rayed his chest to see if he had pneumonia. Like it was, it was amazing. And, and just so people understand, why is this good for you, the hospital? Uh, why is this good yeah. for your father um, beyond just not having the hassle of having a yeah. hospital? Um, because he could stay at home. He has Parkinson's disease and he gets confused. And so the, having to go to a hospital would be is is challenging for him. Um, so that's for for many patients. It's a good thing to be able to be at home. But for the hospitals, we're full. Hospitals are full, full, full. So um, being able to treat people, you know, we're turning people away. So being able to find other places to treat people and have them be able to be at home is really great. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So I do want to kind of get back a little bit to the healthcare workforce and go a little deeper there because 
I mean, it's such a huge issue uh, with just hearing all kinds of healthcare workers dropping out of the workforce at unprecedented rates. And, uh, you know, the news stories kind of feel uh, hopeless sometimes, like everyone's burned out uh, and they're they, they maybe they love the profession, but they just feel like there isn't a place for them anymore. Um, so, uh, Vin, I mean, starting with you, I mean, you mentioned some hazard pay, but maybe could you elaborate if you I mean, if you got to yeah. make a wish list of two or three, three things that would uh, you could offer to nurses or to doctors or, you know, any kinds of healthcare workers to keep them in the workforce. I mean, what what would you pick? Well, we just need more. We artificially, I mean, for everybody watching, we artificially limit. I'll, let, me, let me take my, my ilk, my fellow MDs and, and, and other uh, medical providers. The number of MDs, physicians that can be trained in every given year is artificially limited by, by Congress. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a limitation on how many can actually get into training every year. So demand is always greater than supply of clinical training seats in any given year. And, and, and maybe that made sense. For the last 20, 30, 40 years, it doesn't make sense anymore. We need to revisit some of the policies and the assumptions that were put into place well before the pandemic because we are lacking a diverse, well-trained new generation of physicians that's going to come and backfill the many more that are leaving. So that's number one. We need a policy shift at the highest level so we can fund more seats for more, uh, for more aspiring clinicians. Same thing with nursing school. Same thing across the board for other cadres of healthcare workers. We do not have enough seats to train future nurses, more of them, respiratory therapists, you name it. That's why we have, we have a limited, uh, our existing healthcare workforce crisis is in part self-created mm -hmm. based on policies that have existed for many decades that needs to be revisited. So that's number one. Two, I would just say, let's take a playbook out of uh, our friends across the Atlantic. More of these programs that allow individuals who know, you know what, I know I want to be a nurse. I know I want to be a doc. I know I want to be a PA. And to make, be able to make uh, more of that shift, more of that paradigm jump directly from secondary school, high school, to uh, essentially healthcare vocational school, whether it's medical school or you name it. We need more of those direct paths to cut down on the time people are actually accruing debt and, and not making a paycheck. One of the big limitations here, I mean, I, I plus medical school and training, I didn't actually get into the workforce and make a durable paycheck to help pay off debt. It's one of the reasons I joined the military as a reservist until I was in my mid thirties. That's problematic, that's not scalable. And that was to become an ICU physician, which we need more of. So that is not sustainable. So we need, we need to rethink what are the different opportunities we can get people in to these different professions uh, and take a playbook from, from other paradigms at work um, and then lastly, I'll just say, we talked about Paxlovid and this access to therapeutics. You know, the lobby and interest groups that impact policy, prescribing policies, what say pharmacists can and cannot do, what physicians can and cannot do, what they can get reimbursed for. The physician lobby is a powerful lobby. And it makes no sense to me taking some of the burden off the dock, for example, when it comes to getting access to Paxlovid we need across the country more pharmacists, for example, to be able to do more things. Rule in or rule out if somebody is eligible for Paxlovid on the spot, they can prescribe it. Other medications that should be near OTC, that will be helpful. That will also unburden the rest of the healthcare system from having to deal with some of those really crisis moments, maybe keep them out of the hospital as well. We, so we need, we need a deep rethink here of some fundamental policies so that we can really have a sustainable future. 
Well, Cassie, uh, I mean, obviously this is, you brought this up right away. It's huge importance to the hospitals. Uh, and we hear about nurses leaving hospitals, right? These travel, these lucrative travel nursing contracts. Um, anywhere you look around in your state, in the country, you say this institution, this place is doing it right. They're giving nurses and doctors X, Y, Z, and it's keeping, it's keeping them staffed. I think a lot of what we, I totally agree with everything Ben said. I want to say, say that to begin with. Um, thinking about what are the supports that we can provide to people so that they can work or they can go to school. Um, there are a couple of health systems in Washington state that decided that they would pay childcare for their staff because childcare, I mean, childcare was horrible for the healthcare workforce, which is large, you know, the nursing staff are many women who have younger kids who are, even if they're partnered, they often are the ones that are most responsible for the kid care. And with schools closed and daycares closed and the unpredictability of that, that has been really challenging. So some health systems said, we will pay your childcare if you'll come to work. And they started with saying, we'll pay for your childcare at a licensed childcare center. But a lot, but then a lot of those were closed. And they started saying, okay, we're going to pay for your childcare. We'll pay for your babysitter. We'll pay for your mother to take care of your kids so you can come to work. So that kind of support, that really brought people back. Um, it was a, actually a really positive intervention. Um, more academic support beyond... I totally agree with what Ben said about debt. I would like for people who are going into healthcare, especially if they're willing, if they're working in a hospital or, you know, a kind of a, a institution that is serving, providing broad public service, a hospital, community clinic, to not have to be paying tuition at all and to potentially be getting stipends as well for while they're in school. So they can pay their rent and they can pay their childcare and they can, we've got a lot of folks who want to work in healthcare. Actually, there's a lot, there's, we, we our state turns away thousands of people who want to be in nursing school every year. We are educating fewer nurses right now than we did a decade ago in Washington state. It's remarkable. So that to really reinvigorate that education system is, is critically important. Well, I want to think a bit about uh, kind of these different spheres of healthcare. Uh, you know, we have the hospitals, we have the healthcare system, then we have public health. Um, and it was so kind of, on display throughout the pandemic, how these two things need to be, um, how interdependent they are, and yet how they often aren't functioning well together in our society. Um, and we saw this in all kinds of ways, right? From interventions like masking and vaccine, you know, or, or vaccines. Um, and I just wonder, looking ahead, uh, and start with you, Vin. What do you what do you think the way forward is here? Because it doesn't, you know, I don't think anyone's leaving the pandemic feeling great about how, um, well, at least there was a huge polarization right on a lot of these things. And I wonder how you see kind of we can bring these these two spheres together better. I, I think you're right. Uh, and, and to me, it also, you know, this concept, this division of, of well, there's the healthcare system and there's the public health system. A lot of people, I mean, if you if you poll uh, just do a public poll, I, I, I wonder how many would actually know that there's a, a true difference, appreciate that there's a difference between getting healthcare in, uh, in a hospital setting versus, you know, what does public health do? It, it looks after population level health, the, the health of a, uh, of a community, for example, sort of policies that keep a community safe might, uh, might seem out of touch for what an individual feels is or is not appropriate. Let's look at all the, the debate on, on masking on airplanes as an example. You know, one is, uh, you know, those of us who, who think that, that that policy makes sense still to this day are thinking about that through the lens of public health, not necessarily through somebody's individual 
considerations and whether or not they may need individual health care in a, in a healthcare setting. It all comes down, Will, more than anything. I mean, of all the lessons, all the take homes that exist that, you know, we can, uh, Cassie and I can spend the next you know, several hours talking with, with, to you about. More than anything, this, this this interdependence of our public health system and our healthcare system, why it matters to, to everybody watching right now at home, it comes down to being be- being better communicators. As as at least I'll say for for medical schools, we don't have any. There is no crisis communication class. How do you communicate in a healthcare crisis so that people understand why we're doing what we're doing in the simplest, most effective means possible? That is a learned skill over time that uh, individuals, leaders in, in industry, in business, in politics, in, in the military, I mean, they develop crisis communicators so that people understand. They may disagree with the prevailing policy, policy but largely speaking, in many of these industries, they at least understand why something is being done uh, through simple, effective crisis communication. We did not have that bench of crisis communicators coming in to this pandemic in March of 2020. And that's why you saw that there, there's, there was confusion on why are we pursuing a set of policies for the public's health when it may not make sense for an individual and their, their own sort of healthcare calculus. That has to change. We need to invest in, in, in crisis communication. We need to invest in better uh, uh, ways to think about how we use social media. You know, most people, I showed this picture, I, I don't cast if, if, if you and I have chatted about this, but this picture of, of lungs with, uh, with COVID pneumonia, impacted by COVID pneumonia, and then clear lungs from a patient that's vaccinated as a simple way to explain why you get vaccinated against this virus. And the engagement with something simple like that, a simple message, sort of akin to how we message on why you should not smoke, for example, just vivid images, got millions of, of engagement hits on social media versus you know, other messaging maybe in, in peer-reviewed academic journals that people just are not are resistant to engaging with because it's not that engaging. We need to understand how to use the social media space effectively. We need to develop a bunch of crisis communicators so that we can clearly articulate the difference and the interdependencies between public health and healthcare delivery. Uh, well, Cassie, we're, we're going to go to audience questions in a moment, but I want to get your your thought here because obviously, uh, you know, what happened in public health uh, in the community helped dictate whether your hospital was going to be overwhelmed or not. Yeah. Um, so I will say I have huge respect and admiration for the public health leaders in Washington state. We are so lucky. John Weisman, who was our former secretary of health at the beginning of the pandemic, is extraordinary. Dr. Kathy Lofi, who was our state health officer, also just amazing. Dr. Shaw has been wonderful to work with. We've got Dr. Duchin in King County. We've got really visionary public health leaders. So I didn't actually experience a division between the healthcare system and public health. It was more what Vin was just describing about what did the public believe and the political, the, the, it became political. You know, like if you're wearing a mask, are you making some statement about who you are as opposed to what the, the, what the science says? And you know, I felt what I continue to feel frustrated by in this situation. I'm I'm low risk and fully vaccinated and boosted, and I'm still really careful. You know, I wear my mask everywhere I go still, um, and it's not. It's sort of for me. I don't want. I definitely don't want to get COVID. I haven't had it, but I really don't want other people in my community who are elderly or have Parkinson's or cancer or, you know, whatever to get it because that's their chances of survival are so much worse than mine. And so that sense of I'm doing this as a gesture of caring and concern for my community as opposed to like you can't muzzle me you can't make me wear a mask that kind of individual like it's only it's only about me and that feels like a a real rupture in america is that are we 
are we a community in this together with caring and concern for those that are most vulnerable among us? Or is it just like, this is about my convenience and my needs? Well, that's actually a, uh, a perfect segue into this, the first audience question we have. Uh, and this is it. Uh, relative normalcy doesn't really seem to apply to the millions of people who are immune compromised. How can we reconcile the need for getting to some sort of normalcy for a number of folks, but also taking into account uh, the safety of immune system compromised people, other high risk people for COVID? Um, uh, Vin, do you want to start with that? I think, I, mean, I think we're talking about the moment we're in right now, right, of this yeah. relative normalcy. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I empathize with uh, with that question because I've had a lot of people within, uh, actually, given the times we're in across the country, but especially from King County, reach out and say, can you help me get uh, one of these therapeutics like Ebushel, this monoclonal antibody that uh, people on chemotherapy, for example, can take and it can, prote- it can heighten their protection to avoid getting COVID um, so it can help prevent an infection, prevent uh, end up getting sick if you don't mount a normal response to vaccines. And, and what, what those experiences, uh, others across the country, their experiences with getting these therapeutics has, 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 has given me this perspective is it's that we can't, we should not be removing mitigation measures like masking on planes, um, masking in schools as an example. I think the, the two in some ways are one and the same these enclosed spaces where some, some folks are vulnerable, they have yet to be vaccinated in the case of number five, until, or they might be coming home, these kiddos that are even vaccinated might be coming home to a multi-generational household where there's maybe somebody who's immunocompromised. We shouldn't be getting rid of these broad public health measures until everybody has durable access who needs it to an heavy shelf or to a Paxlovid or to you name it, therapeutic, these tools in our toolkit that we like to talk so uh, so much about, they're still really darn hard to access for a lot of people who need it, like the immunocompromised. So to me, the balance is never going to be perfect. You're never going to make everybody happy. Everybody, some are going to feel like it's too soon. Others going to say, you know, what have you been waiting for? And yet, the, per, the 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 right balance in my mind is if we have, we can start to really release some of these measures. Obviously, the cat's already out of the bag. But in the ideal setting. We, re- we start to let go of some of these measures like masking in planes when somebody who wants or needs one of these therapeutics can easily access it. And I'll just lastly say, perhaps as we enter the fall winter period, if you're high risk and you're watching this, you're wondering, well, gosh, you know, what do I do? Come up with a care plan. I, 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 for, for, my, for my patients that are high risk, I'd love to do a standing order for Paxlovid as an example. If they test positive, boom, they can just go to the pharmacy and they can fill a prescription like steroids for an asthmatic. That's the type of paradigm here. Cassie, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I think we have this vision of normalcy being we're back in you know the beginning of 2020 or the end of 2019. And I, you know, I don't think wearing a mask is that big of a deal. And I, that's something that I'm sort of startled by that everyone, that, 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 which is so proven to be such an effective intervention feels so objectionable. Um, you know, like as Ben said, why would we not keep wearing masks on planes to make sure that those that are most vulnerable around us are kept safe? It's not a, it's not a burden. The burden on me to wear a mask on a plane is minute compared to the burden of someone on the plane who's got cancer getting COVID. I, think, well, I, think we should modify, I guess what I'm saying is I, I want to modify our, our definition of normal. 
you know, to be yeah. like normal with community care. So here's a, here's another question. I'll open up to both of you. Uh, are there studies that show a correlation between the prevalence of underlying health conditions such as diabetes in people who work in low paid jobs? If an employee can only afford to enroll in a company sponsored HMO instead of a PPO with higher premiums, does this affect levels of accessibility, heightened inequalities, uh, especially in the black and brown communities? I'm not sure. Uh, is this something? Can either of you take up, take this? I got a little bit lost in the question. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I think I think the the gist here is that um, you know does I think does worse insurance mean you've got higher risk? Yeah, yeah. I mean, are, are people being you know suffering uh, you know because of their insurance status um, on some level? Um, I think that is true in many cases about various healthcare conditions. However, I think that there were so many extraordinary measures put in place for COVID that if you got COVID, the access to treatment in Washington State at least was quite good. Um, but I think that whether or not you got whether or not you got COVID to start with, and what your underlying the underlying conditions that you brought into the equation were very different. Um, does that make sense? And Ben, Ben, I'm looking yeah. to see yeah. If you. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I was just gonna. I, com I completely agree that even if there was. Uh, if there was concerns about healthcare insurance quality or kind of the nature of the plan that you held um, uh, before you got COVID, if you if you did uh, end up getting it infected, that once if you needed care because of the measures that were put in place, uh, it was all one and the same. You were still going to get excellent care. It was it was going to be robustly covered. Um, I will say that I since it's uh, we just got out of Earth Month, and because I think there was some uh, there was some mention will in that question of you know, where somebody may be residing, perhaps in, in an urban setting. Just more of a, one of, again, one of maybe the silver linings here, even this, this may not feel like a silver lining, is uh, there's been more of this focus on synergistic risks. I live, I might be, I might have a patient who lives in the, in an inner urban, urban setting close to say a subway station or um, other public transit. They're inhaling by definition poor quality air. Turns out that that was an independent risk factor for having a more severe outcome from COVID-19 if, if you were exposed and infected. And so this combination of uh, the chronic risk factors all around me and the ambient environment, those that I can't even see, like air pollution, fundamentally change your risk to something like an infectious disease pandemic. And, and that is, that's another lens by which we can really think about environmental health, climate change, however you want to talk about it. But all these risks that we live with are synergistic. They're not just... Isolated risk that we experience one at a time. Well, uh, we're just coming up at the end, but I do want to maybe get thirty-second final thoughts uh, from you, Vin, first on um, mental health. We haven't really mentioned it, but it's come to the forefront in the conversation uh, throughout the pandemic. I mean, would you say that the pandemic has shown a light on the importance of mental wellness? Has it improved or worsened? since the pandemic began, in your opinion? I think it's worsened. Uh, and especially, uh, you know, multiple studies have been done, a lot of late critiques have been had on the impact it's had on younger people, adolescents especially. Uh, and, and to me, that that's where it's really important for us. You know, we've been talking about what does relative normalcy look like. Uh, ultimately, 
you know, as we think about approaches, if there is another surge down the road, how do we how do we handle this in a way where uh, we're thinking also about the mental health impacts of of younger people as we're trying to say protect those that are higher risk? That is something that I, I've heard a lot about, um, a lot of critiques about. Well, you you know, in protecting one group of individuals, you're posing untold harm to a different part of society. If we're saying, if we're advocating, say, on school closures down the road, if we need to, mm-hmm. how do we balance that? That's really difficult. And and yes, I, I do think the pandemic has shown a light on the the need to balance everything. And I'm sure, and I've talked to Secretary Shaw and others. Um, you know, I know that they live this, and they make really hard decisions. And we, to Cassie's point, we have the best healthcare leaders in the country, in my opinion, and they have a really difficult job. Yeah, Cassie, yeah. final thoughts. Yeah, I also think it's worse. I mean, this just the collective stress and the collective trauma over the last two years, and the uncertainty about what comes next. You know, we are we are people who humans are people who like to know. We like to know what's going to happen. We like to be able to plan and work towards a plan. And it's really hard to know what the plan is. And I've got three kids, three school age kids, and it's they're doing okay, but it's it's really challenging. You know, the development. I think the developmental milestones are wild. Like I have a sixteen year old who said. <laughs> think I like girls about two years ago. And I said, any girl in particular? And he said, how would I know? I don't see any girls. I don't think I'm going to see any girls. I don't know when I'm going to see a girl. You know, it's like, like that just, you know, that's when kids sort of start dating a little bit. None of his friends have done that because they're all wearing masks and keeping separate. You're just like, how, how, how do we get, how do the, how do you kind of make up for that time? And we already have an epidemic of loneliness in this country and then people are isolated. You know, it's just like, it, it's all those pressures, I think. We're going to see how they um, how they affect us, I think, for probably a decade. Yeah. Well, we've run out of time. I wish we could keep going. I know both of you could keep going uh, a lot longer than this. But just want to thank you both for, for joining us today, uh, for sharing your thoughts. And there's a lot of work to do and a lot to think about going forward. Thank you for having Thanks, us. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Vin, Cassie, and Will for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krisnovich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like us, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, Members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.